This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. There are nearly 2 million people living behind bars in America. In fact, the United States leads the world when it comes to mass incarceration. There are more people in prisons and jails here than anywhere else in the world. This type of mass incarceration comes with both financial and social costs. Prisons can be overcrowded, conditions subpar. They're a fiscal burden on states. And experts say they're not necessarily making us any safer. We spoke with Chicago-based author Ben Austin about his latest book, Correction, Parole, Prison, and the Possibility of Change. Austin traces the rise of mass incarceration in America through the lens of parole and explores how the U.S. could get out of its, quote, mass incarceration crisis. I started off by asking Ben how he got the idea to look into the history of parole and incarceration. And here's what he had to say. There's a crime that happens at Cabrini-Green in 1970, and it's a really terrible crime. Two police officers are are killed by snipers there. And this is a time when when there was this, it felt like there was a war between the police and the black community in Chicago. Uh, It's a year after the police murdered Fred Hampton, the Black Mm -hmm. Panther leader. And so this was this momentous event. And I wrote all about it because it changed Cabrini-Green, it changed the city. And one of the one of the people who was convicted of that crime of killing the two police officers was a 17 year old named Johnny Veal, who was known to be in a gang there. Yeah, and we'll talk more about. We'll Johnny. talk more about him. So before we get to that, I want to dig into this this idea of parole. Right, we know that Illinois it got rid of discretionary parole back in 1978. That's uh, where a parole board could decide that someone should be let out of prison early. Yeah. And while today the system's not fully re- been returned. In 2019, state lawmakers did reinstate it for many folks who were serving long sentences uh, if they were under 21 when they committed the crime. What else can you tell us there to, to help paint the picture of, of how things have actually worked since those kinds of changes were made, Ben? Yeah, I'm just even going to pause there because most people won't even believe what you just said. Mm-hmm. We as a state do not have a parole system. People cannot get out of prison on parole. Unless you committed your crime before 1978, you don't, are not eligible for parole. And Illinois isn't alone. 16 states do that, the federal government. But this thing that seems like fundamental to any criminal justice system or, or any society or even any religion, we don't have, which is this process of second chances. And you're right. There was a law passed recently. It's not retroactive. So it's not the, the one that if you commit a crime under 21, you can be eligible for parole. We won't see the effect of that for another decade because it doesn't go back to anyone who's currently in prison. Mm. I know that there are currently two bills up for discussion to, to bring back yep. that uh, parole board system. You write about this in the in the chapter called 20 is Plenty in the book. So just give us an overview of, of the bills and just their intended impact. 
Yeah, the idea that anyone in prison uh, deserves at least a chance at some point to prove their worthiness for a return to free society. Not that they would automatically get out, which is sort of what, what a kind of fear-monger approach to dismissing these, um, but that, that you know, what's the point of a long punishment? What do we really want out of it? Is it just to warehouse people forever, or do we want people to, to reform? We call these, we call our prisons in the United States correctional facilities. Are they in the business of corrections? If they are of correcting people, then there should be this opportunity. Um, one of the bills is everyone in prison will, would be eligible at some point, at least for a consideration. Another one is looking at, at elderly people specifically, which is maybe more palatable to people you could imagine, um, that once you reach a certain age, you can come up for parole consideration. Let's get back to Johnny Veal. You mentioned him a moment ago. He's one of two local men who were incarcerated that got your attention yeah. and uh, whose stories you share at the center of this book. So one is Johnny Veal. The other is Michael Henderson. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, so so Johnny Veal, as I was saying before, was committed, convicted of this crime in 1970. Um, he's been coming up for parole ever since. And uh, he says he's innocent of this crime. And that's part of the dilemma of him getting out. I meet him in 2019, 2018, 2019. Somebody reaches out to me and says, this guy you wrote about, you should go go meet him. He's innocent and he's coming up for parole. And so I start to, to learn more about him. Mm. He's, you know, he's made the most of his time in prison. Uh, these last 25 years that he, that he served, he was just did extraordinary things. You know, letters from the warden, letters from people he was incarcerated with, uh, a mentor, a teacher, uh, really educated himself in there. Uh, Michael Henderson is is from East St. Louis, which is downstate, just across the Mississippi from St. Louis. Right. And he was convicted of a crime in, in the early 1970s when he was 18. He shot another young man outside a nightclub. Uh, and he had been serving, he served 46 years for that crime. And uh, somebody who uh, also, you know, has made the most of his prison time and in a kind of different way, which is like, what I could do to survive there and to live a, a life that felt like a meaningful life, but full. So even yeah. even how do I feed myself? How do I even make a little money in, in prison to send back home to my family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, both Johnny Veal and Michael Henderson, as you said, I mean, they were 17 and 18, respectively, when they committed their crimes. They were sentenced to more than a century in prison. But they did go before the parole board over those years, multiple times, right? Year after, I mean, when you were describing Michael's story, for, for instance, I mean, just talking about, you know, year after year, him going back and being hopeful the next year and hopeful the year after that. Uh, what were their experiences seeking parole? Were they similar? Very different in a lot of ways. Michael is is, is preternaturally hopeful in the way you said and really believed in, in his chances. Um, even if he was doing things, as I was saying, to, to make a better life for him that sometimes worked against him. You know, if, if he's like, you know, sewing clothes in prison to make money, uh, when the guards find a, a sewing needle, he's going to get a, a punishment for that, and it's going to hurt his chances the next time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnny Veal, for two reasons, had a much harder time in a lot of ways. One, because he claimed innocence. And parole, the sort of uh, commodity in parole, is to plead remorse, uh, to almost beg for forgiveness. And if you claim innocence, you're kind of screwed. There's, there's really like uh, a dilemma you face. You're, 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 you, it's even harder to get out. Parole boards aren't really set up to investigate the past. Um, Johnny was also cast in 1970 as like 
this super predator monster um, of that of this sensational crime. And that that idea never left him that he was he was sort of evil incarnate. Um, you know, I read these protest letters for for decades, and they're constantly casting him. People who have hadn't seen him or spoken to him ever, and hadn't even known anything about him since the trial in 1970, and are still sort of creating this idea that he is like Dracula or Frankenstein. So, where are both gentlemen now? You're going to give away the end of the book. Okay, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, they're both out. Yeah. This 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 tracks their journey. And uh, both both of them make parole. So Veal's out on parole after all this time. Your your book is digging though into the inequity of of parole. So just talk more about that and and why you wanted to focus on this rather than say just the legal system as a whole or, or prison infrastructure. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I went to a parole hearing for the first time in Springfield, and and it blew my mind. I mean, it was it was just like what stood out. Just it was it was one it was just a, a like a, a nothing room and and thirteen twelve thirteen fourteen people sitting around a table who are just ordinary folks in a lot of ways and they're making these these decisions which are are, are are immense you know somebody's freedom or ongoing incarceration and really it was just a kind of contest of storytelling of who could tell a better story about the past or about the present you know a past crime versus somebody's time in prison a story of uh, uh, remorse or one of innocence, and uh, I'm a storyteller myself, mm-hmm. uh, and I was I was sort of hooked by this idea and this question of you said like well why this I saw it as a window onto the entire criminal justice system and in a lot of ways onto our entire society. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells everything that happened before it, so you know an arrest, a crime, time in prison, these these big decisions, um, and there are other windows onto the criminal system, but it also uh, the parole board members, in a way, were debating this thing, which we we should all be debating, which is what's the point of a prison sentence? Because those are the terms on which they're they're trying to to figure out, like, you know, what is the worth of what somebody did over the last twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years? And we don't we don't really have an answer for that. We lock up a quarter of the world's prison population, and we don't really have an answer for that. That that's tragic. That that's that's something that has to change. So as you're, you're talking there about sitting in on these parole hearings in, in Illinois, um, in one case, uh, you recount in the book uh, a board member who supported release for uh, a candidate um, had asked another board member why she opposed it. And she said, oh, I'm just not feeling it. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these decisions... You know, this is one of the reasons parole was was abolished in 1978. That it is kind of it is so arbitrary. It is subjective, um, and yet at the same time, we want people to be seen and heard. Like parole is this this moment where people who are are, are being removed from society and kind of forgotten have a chance to be seen and heard. So we want this kind of individual uh, um, assessment. Um, but it's really it's really problematic yeah. um, at the same time. And so, you know, even you talked about those bills. We're asking for more of something. We should bring back parole, but it really needs to be reformed and have certain guardrails around it. Growing rates of incarceration really gained steam in the last 50 years, right? Right. Let's go back again to the early 70s, right? Talk about what was going on in the country at the time that shaped not just America's uh, approach to incarceration, but also parole and how we view rehabilitation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mass incarceration turns 50 this year. This is our 50th anniversary. 
and rates start to skyrocket in 1973. They just start to go up and up and up, uh, you know, all the way until 2009. Um, there was a debate in the early 70s about about what to do with prisons. Um, after Attica, this, this uprising, this riot at this prison in upstate New York, uh, the country's attention was on prisons in a way, and really about rethinking infrastructure and what we're doing in a way you can sort of draw a parallel to after George Floyd's murder in 2020. It really it felt, felt like a, a moment of opportunity. And, and just like in these last three years, there was this intense blowback. And uh, started with Republicans and conservatives of, of really sort of um, uh, drumming up fear about crime um, and using that as a, a political wedge. Um, but that, then it really becoming mainstream. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- those ideas of, of tough on crime became became our sort of how, how all of us think. And by the 90s, as crime is, is, is precipitously dropping, we're still locking up more and more people. And you have Democrats, including our current president, mm-hmm. um, really, really asking for more incarceration and more certain incarceration and longer, longer periods of incarceration. You know, one of the questions that you set out to answer in your book is, you know, what must someone who commits a terrible act do to get a second chance? Do you feel like you have the answer? What does your research show? Yeah. And Sasha, I mean, that that question, you know, you also asked about why parole. So much of our sense of, of mercy and our empathy often goes to people. We say, oh, they were innocent or this was a wrongful conviction. And for us as a country to do something about mass incarceration, that this extreme anomaly the majority of people who are in prison did commit crimes, um, they're, they're even violent crimes. Mm-hmm. What about them? We really have to consider what it is we want out of a punishment for, 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 for them. What do you say to people who say, yes, they committed crimes and they deserve to stay there? They don't deserve to get parole. That is definitely how most of us feel. And we feel that way because we've been steeped in 50 years of this, of this thinking. Uh, th- this tough on crime rhetoric. We have to push back against that. We have to, we have to realize, and in a way, this is an attempt of, of, of what I'm, what I'm doing with this book is to just really say this isn't normal. Um, at parole hearings, victims of crimes or their relatives are there as well. And even after 50 years, 40 years, I would see them there and they are as unsatisfied by 40 years of incarceration as they were by 10 and 20. And so something about the system is not fulfilling their needs either. Uh, an eternal punishment is not something that gives them 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 any solace. Yeah. And so we need to do something different. It, it, it costs a crazy amount of money. It doesn't make us safer. And uh, it's also not providing benefits for either people who need to, people who have changed, transformed over, over decades, who've grown old in prison, um, they are not who they were at 18, like like none of us were. And and also the people who are victims of crimes, the, the, the system as it exists is failing them too. In uh, preparing for this interview and reading your book and doing some other research, I read something that said America is addicted to punishment. Is that is that valid? Oh, I think so. I think we're, we are – we are steeped in this culture, um, and, and it's hard to think of, of an alternative. I mean, what you said about they deserve to be there. Well, for how long? What's, what's the, what do we want out of 10, 20, 30 years? What do we want out of that time? Um, most people believe, you know, many scholars now and institutions believe 20 years. is, a, is We could cap prison terms at 20 years. It's, a, it's an idea. 
And whatever it's supposed to accomplish, it can accomplish in that time. That would put us sort of parallel with the rest of the world. Um, yeah, we do things that, that other countries don't. I was at a parole hearing last week where people talked about, the parole board members talked about 60 years as if it was nothing. Hmm. Another parole hearing, for, for Johnny's last hearing, the board member said, uh, Johnny was 68 years old, and the board member said his release date, his mandatory release date is 2071, and then just kept on talking. Like, what, so what does that even mean to say that? He's saying something that's impossible, but normalizing it. He's meaning saying he'll die in prison. There is no 2071 for, for, for any of us, probably. You know, but, so not, not for Johnny Veal at 67. And so to say it like that, that there's like a hundred year sentence is just a, a, it's a euphemism in a way for something that's monstrous and also impossible. So Ben, you opened the book with this, um, alarming partial timeline of prisons and parole in the U.S., and it dates all the way back to Philly in, what, 1790. Fascinating stuff to read. We're, we're watching the number of people in these systems grow and grow to hundreds of thousands, to millions. What do you think a more humane system of justice would have looked like all yeah. these years? Yeah. I mean, one way to answer that is during the course of reporting this book, I went to prisons in Finland and Norway, and uh, I went with a group called Impact Justice. And the prisons there, they don't have a parole system in many ways because they don't need one, because from day one, everything is set up to prepare people for their return to society. And, and that's not just for humanitarian reasons. It's also for financial reasons and really for public safety reasons primarily, that if people are, are prepared to go back, um, if they've dealt with some of the problems that got them sent there in the first place, we're all safer. Yeah. And, and it gives a real purpose to, to why you lock somebody up. You know, prison is the last resort for, you know, of, of, pun- of extreme punishments. So it's, a, you know, it's, it's, you know, we, in, in our Declaration of Independence, we believe that life liberty, that, so taking away liberty is immense. And, and when you do that, uh, there should be reason for it. Um, yeah, we had, we had 200,000 people in prison at the start of mass incarceration. So in the early 1970s Mm -hmm. and, and in a way we were relatively stable for about, for about most of the 20th century before then. And so what we've done since, which is, you know, now we have 1.2 million people in prison and another 800,000 or so in jails, um, is, is just a complete anomaly, not just globally, but also for our own history. Before we bring it back home, I, I do want to stay overseas for, for just a moment, right? Because you, you do write um, quite extensively about other countries, including Finland, right, as you, you talked about. You mentioned that it was the uh, at one point the America of Europe, right? which, I mean, that in itself is, is just is striking. Talk a bit more about how the Finnish government worked to eventually shed that title and maybe the biggest lessons that the U.S. can learn from these foreign prison systems. Yeah, yeah. Finland was especially interesting because in the 1970s, it had the same incarceration rate, really high incarceration rate as the United States. Right. Not high compared to today, but but high in, compared to other countries. And they made a decision as a country. Uh, they had been part of the Soviet Union, and they wanted to be more like their Scandinavian neighbors. And so they made small changes to to punishments that that all of them started adding up of uh, 
to, to work towards having a, 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 a criminal justice system that was geared towards returning people back to, to citizenship and using punishment as, uh, prison as a last resort. And it went hand in hand with also building up uh, a, a social safety network, uh, a much more robust one. Um, and those really work together. You know, so this idea that you fight crime at its root, that you fight poverty. Um, there, there, there are ways that people don't have to turn to crime in the first place. Now, we went the exact opposite. We have the same incarceration rate as, as Finland in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. We both ramp up punishments and also slash the social safety net. So we, we, we make it, we, we, we turn away from fighting crime and we turn towards fighting, uh, I'm sorry, fighting poverty and, and go into this idea that we have this war on crime. Hmm. There's a, a growing movement in the country, in the U.S., one that's got roots here in Chicago to abolish prisons and to look at alternatives to prosecution, prosecution and incarceration. This is a bigger philosophical question than, than perhaps we have time for today, Ben. But just broadly speaking, I'm curious what you would like to see as an alternative system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to, for us to imagine a world without prisons, as, as people like Angela Davis and others have asked us to. Um, one of the things that, that she and others say is to imagine a kind of continuum towards abolition. So that some abolitionists would think that you don't tinker with things like parole because you're you're justifying the system. But you also have these hundreds of thousands of people serving long sentences that are in prison now and are ready to be released, that they're transformed, they're different than they were when they were they went to prison. And there has to be a mechanism for them to, to, to see the light of day again. Mm. So I think that's important. And then you also have to think about longer term. I mean, so you can't, you have to think about people reforms, but you also have to think about a more just criminal justice system. It, I, I would, I'm sorry, go ahead, Sasha. In the spirit of, of what I brought up earlier, I mean, critics will say, yeah, but we need to be kept safe. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you suggest? I think this is, this makes people safe. I mean, we, you know, there are, there are about 200,000 people in prison today, the, the size of the entire prison population in 1970s who are never going to leave prison. Meaning they, they have life sentences or sentences so damn long that they're the same thing. But that still leaves a million people who are coming back. What do we, do we want to be safe? Well, then we need to make this system smarter. We have to do something that's going to make that time productive, uh, that is readying people for return. We should use it more sparingly, much, much, much more sparingly. For, for, for people who do go to prison, most of them are coming back. And when they do come back, we can't, we can't set them up to fail, which is how the system also works, that it strips them of rights even when, when people come back. As much as this book is about systems, it's, there's a very much a human angle in here. And I, I know that you have a passage that you want to read yes. from the book. Yeah, I'm going to read about Michael Henderson, who, who served 46 years. So uh, this is when he first goes to prison, and he, he's thinking back to his time uh, when he, he, he went to juvenile detention facility. In practice, what youth prison did most effectively was prepare Michael for the adult version. He served time in a juvenile facility known as Little Joliet, as if it were the junior varsity to the varsity prison in the same Illinois city. He had an instructor in juvie, a hulking, brutal type, who taught physical education and insisted that his charges learn to fight. After night cleanup, the man marched the boys down to the basement. They were ordered to clear the furniture and the bumper pool table. The teenagers were paired off, and other boys formed a ring around them. 
The staff cheered as the teens were forced to box. If someone tried to retreat, elbows and boots repelled him back into the fray. For Michael's first bout, he was pitted against a much taller boy, a white kid. The the instructor crouched down to glare into Michael's eyes. If you don't go in and fight, I'm going to beat your ass myself. Michael had every reason to believe him. The teenagers chanted and jeered, and the boy with the larger reach peppered Michael's face with blows. Michael had no other choice but to come back for more. That was the lesson. Once a fight started, it could end only in extreme violence. What is it about Michael's story that really stayed with you the most? Yeah. There's a lot there. I mean, he, the, just the humanity, uh, the, his humanity. And I think, I think, you know, in a way that's a big effort of the book to, to counter these, these ideas, even what you were saying before, they should, people should just stay there forever. You spend time with Michael and you get to know him and you get to know the range of his, of his personality. And you have to feel like, like there has to be purpose to why, to, to lock, of why locking him up and that, and that people change. People change over time. They transform. They grow. They grow old, but they also grow in other ways. They, they become more mature. So during your research process for correction, Ben, you say that it felt like you were witnessing some changes, some big shifts in real time. Um, this was especially true, it sounded like, during that period of the, the COVID pandemic years, if you will. So talk more about your reflections of 2020 through 2022. Yeah, man. We talking earlier about George Floyd there. Yeah. I mean, Sasha, it, it really felt in reporting this that I was inside something transformative. I began this book really uh, maybe early 2019, and our views on justice seemed to be changing and reforming. Uh, even, even the Trump administration had passed something called the First Step Act, which did a lot of criminal justice reforms and really was just a first step, but it was something it was moving in that direction. And then, and then George Floyd and the, and the protests really seemed to supercharge that, that we were, we were really reassessing our systems in terms of their racial bias and their effectiveness and, and rethinking things that didn't seem like possible to rethink. And I saw that at parole boards. I saw people who were even tough on crime, you know, prosecutors and former police officers, talking about people who committed violent crimes and thinking about their humanity and thinking about them having a second chance. I saw that the release rates went up. They went up in Illinois. They went up across the country. And then just as suddenly, everything disappeared. This retrenchment, I wasn't seeing something. I was inside a bubble is what I was doing, and a bubble like the one in the 1970s. I don't know where we are now exactly, Um, but... But that, that hopefulness, the idea that I was seeing something that might be permanent for our country, that certainly wasn't the case. Uh, this kind of pendulum back and forth between some some reforms and then some tough on crime backlash, that's what it felt like happened. That's what did happen. And that is not the solution. We have to get out of that. We need something transformative, something much bigger. We mentioned earlier that 2023 marks uh, the 50-year anniversary of of mass incarceration in this country with uh, the prison population having grown some 500 percent since 1973 that's according to data from research and advocacy group the sentencing project i mean what do you think that people still don't get ben about the consequences 
of our mass incarceration crisis. Yeah. I, I just repeat something I said earlier about we have to know that this isn't normal, that those numbers are, are an aberration globally and even for our own history. And this is a relatively recent phenomenon. 50 years is a long time, but not our entire history. And we have to do the things to change that, that this isn't making us safer. It's not just to really think, what do we want? A ge- we want geriatric prisons. The, the largest growing prison population, the fastest growing one is, is elderly people. Is that really what we want as a country? Is there some purpose to that? Um, the thing we do more than anywhere else, we should just, we should at least have a real clear justification for why we do it. And that we don't is, is, is something that, that's unacceptable. So in your view, what are the first steps to a path forward? Well, I even think about if you, if we, if we added more reform, even here in Illinois, and more parole, even here in, in Illinois, um, people would have a hearing, but it would need other reforms to come along with it. Uh, we would have to make sure that parole boards were more transparent, that they were judging people not just on their original crime, but on other criteria like what they've done since. Uh, we would have to add actual programs in prisons where there were, uh, you know, chances to re- be rehabilitated, to rehabilitate themselves. Uh, we would have to add more second chance opportunities. And once people got out, um, man, in Finland, uh, social services kick in when people get out of prison. We, their money is delivered to them because automatically that, because that's the moment when they're most at most at risk and and we don't want those people to fail we don't want them to go back immediately um you might say well that's why would they be deserving but deserving because it costs us even more to send someone back and so we need a more human approach but but the human approach is a sensible one we just have to get past our our that the sort of drunk on on punishment that you said, which is tied up with a a lot of other problems, including, including racism, mm-hmm. um, and you know that that sense of fear, which is you know it's it's in the po- political realm, and and a lot of punishment. We have to get it out of out of the hands of politicians. They can't be the ones setting sentences because they're always responding uh, to what's in the news and and the need to get to get reelected. We've got about twenty seconds left. Who is this book for? Who do you want to reach? Man, I, 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 this feels like I said, the parole is a window, not just onto the criminal justice system, but, but us, our society. Uh, I don't want to just preach to the choir. I don't want people who are just already radical reformers. I want people to, 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 who, who don't know anything about this, who don't agree to spend time with, with the people inside this book. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone should have to go in prison at some point and, and just talk to people. This thing that we do, it should be a requirement. I mean, there should be, there should be more transparency even in that way. We'll leave it there. Chicago journalist and author Ben Austin, his new book, Correction, Parole, Prison, and the Possibility of Change is out now. Thank you so much for stopping oh, by Sasha. and digging into this topic. Yeah, with me. thank you. Thank you so much. This episode was produced by me and Meha Ahmed. It was edited by Meha and Dan Tucker. Dive deeper into the issues that matter to you by subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, don't forget to leave us a rating and review so that more listeners can find our show. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.